to Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Cynthia B. Myers, Professor of Communication at the College of Mount St. Vincent and author of the book, A Word from Our Sponsor, Admin Advertising in the Golden Age of Radio. We will discuss her work on the Hollywood Blacklist, including her article, Inside a Broadcasting Blacklist, Craft Television Theater, 1951 to 1955, which is published in the Journal of American History. So welcome to the show, Cynthia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you on. Um, I'm a big radio fan myself, and I thought this article was just really fantastic. It's like a great story, some fascinating archival research, and beautifully written as well. So, so congrats on this excellent work. And I look forward to reading a lot more of it. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> so for listeners who might not be that familiar with uh, radio and television history, especially in the immediate post-war era, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it was like and, and how it was made. Sure. Um, you know, when broadcasting, uh, uh, began to enter more American homes, they had to figure out how to make money from it. And the broadcasters themselves couldn't charge, um, you know, entry fees or sell tickets. And so they started selling airtime or renting airtime to advertisers uh, who, when they rented the airtime, uh, were also then responsible for the programming. Uh, the broadcasters didn't want to spend the money on programming. It was a loss for them. Uh, so what happens is the rise of single sponsorship, which is... Um, one advertiser, you know, controlling a period of time and then programming it. And initially they started out just, you know, putting music on the air um, because they didn't want to annoy uh, listeners with direct advertising. It was called indirect advertising. Uh, but this changes during the Depression. And during the Depression, uh, radio actually becomes the fastest growing advertising medium. And a lot of people believed it was a more powerful advertising medium than print. Uh, it was entering the home, and they thought it would, you know, really shape people's attitudes in a way that print media never could. So a lot of advertisers got into it, and pretty soon um, it became standard for the advertiser to hire their ad agency uh, to produce the program. So instead of hiring Broadway producers or other kinds of producers, um, the ad agencies then were there to make sure that the program was uh, fitting in with the brand image. Um, and so you have different ad agencies um, pursuing different programming strategies during the 30s and 40s. So J. Walter Thompson, which is the ad agency that I'm talking about in this article, uh, specialized in the celebrity association most of the time. So they had like Bing Crosby singing on Craft Music Hall. They had movie stars on Lux Radio Theater. Uh, but different agencies were pursuing different ad strategies. So uh, this, the Hummerts, Frank and Ann Hummert, pursued um, a reason why ad strategy where they gave you reasons why to buy the product. And so their soap operas were very reason why. Here's a problem. Here's a solution. The solution is the product. Um, uh, BBDO, uh, which is another agency I write about a lot, um, they were institutional advertising specialists. That is, they specialized in the corporate image 
And so they made shows for DuPont, like Cavalcade of America, uh, which was designed to burnish the image of a big chemical company that nobody liked. Um, They also did the March of Time. They actually produced it and cast it and wrote it and scripted it. Uh, It included uh, actors like Orson Welles reenacting and impersonating actual newsmakers in which they would fictionalize what was actually happening in the news. I have a whole article about that as well. Um, uh, so each each advertiser and their agency kind of pursued a different programming strategy in the 30s and 40s. And they had, they had total content control. And this is really, really important. Um, people are aware of the content control, but what they're not aware of is that the networks or the broadcasters really didn't have much to say about these programs. Um, they would have a, a, what's now called a standards and practices division that would sometimes complain about scripts in advance, but essentially the advertisers and the agencies controlled the content. And so by the time we get to the late 40s and early 50s, um, when blacklisting gets started, um, the advertisers and their agencies are the ones who are in charge of the content, and the content exists to make the advertiser look good. So the advertiser doesn't want any content that might make them look bad. Um, and this um, connection between the, the program content and the advertiser was assumed. In other words, the listeners, likewise, when they heard something, for example, they'd hear a story on March of Time and they didn't like the story, um, then they would complain. Um, and, you know, that would be a problem because the listeners knew that the advertisers were controlling the, the, the um, content. And, and another thing that people don't know is long before the blacklisting period, um, when people didn't like something on the radio, they would write letters and sometimes threaten to boycott the advertiser. And this happened a lot at March of Time. Uh, Wrigley, the gum company, pulled out of sponsoring the March of Time when a bunch of people complained about how you know, the situation in Germany was being handled in 1936. Um, so this whole uh, connection between the advertiser and the program content was extremely well established, not only in the mind of the advertisers, but also in the mind of audiences. Um, so in the early 50s, we start to have that separation begin to happen. Networks begin to start taking control over more programs. We have the invention of shows like the Today Show, which was a network-controlled program. And, but it's not really until the 1960s that the networks are choosing the programs, selecting the programs, scheduling the programs, and then just selling interstitial minutes to advertisers. And at that point, an advertiser can choose where to put their interstitial minute. And therefore, if they don't like the program content, they can just put it in another program. And so they're not as invested in and they're not as worried about the program content because they can move their ad the way they could not in a single sponsorship environment. Well, so in this paper, you use craft as a kind of case study of advertising on both radio and television during the period. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how craft approached it's sort of advertising as a project, what it was looking for, what it wanted to accomplish, and how it gauged the success or lack of success of a particular advertising campaign. Sure. Um, Kraft is a fascinating company that rose to dominance in part by um, 
patent litigation, hostile takeovers. They got the Philadelphia cream cheese essentially through litigation. And they also really invested heavily in advertising at a fairly early stage. Um, a lot of people also don't understand that in the 1920s, advertising was still looked at by some companies as a, not a very reliable way to sell things through mass media. Um, personalized selling was considered the gold standard and advertising and media was considered maybe less effective. But um, Kraft was a pioneer in that. And um, the director of advertising who I write about in this article, Jack Platt, um, was part of that whole rise um, in this new belief in advertising as being able to actually sell stuff. Um, and he was very careful to experiment uh, with different media. So, for example, when television was still not well distributed and most American homes didn't have TVs, uh, he put Kraft Television Theater on television and only advertised one Kraft brand and then did not advertise that brand in any other media and sales went up. And so he used that as his, um, you know, his, his test. And he determined that broadcast media in particular was extraordinarily powerful. And one of the big powerful things about broadcast media was that it could reach millions of people at one time, unlike any print media. And it invaded the home in a kind of pervasive way. And again, this connects back to media regulation, which was predicated on this notion that broadcast media was particularly dangerous in a way that print media was not. And so it did not enjoy full First Amendment protections for this reason. So someone like Jack Platt also really believed that. So because Kraft sort of grew into a, a food conglomerate by taking over lots of other local companies and then turning them into, into national brands, um, they were deeply invested in the notion of national brand advertising as a way to build those local brands into national ones. Um, he also really believed in informational advertising. And this is something I'm really interested in because we no longer have informational advertising. We have advertising that is designed to push our emotional buttons. You know, uh, we're all friends together. We drink Pepsi together or we drink Budweiser together. And it's nothing to do with the product. Um, but Kraft and Jack Platt were still invested in this notion of advertising as informational. And they saw broadcast media as the most effective way um, to get this information out about the product. And so they really believed in, in providing a form of entertainment that um, included stars who would reflect well on the Kraft brands. And so they had sponsored uh, Kraft Music Hall for many years on radio which featured Bing Crosby as the MC for many years. And they had guest stars every week. Um, but Platt was very adamant with J. Walter Thompson, the producing advertising agency, that none of the stars who appeared on these radio shows uh, could ever reflect badly uh, on, the, on the company. And so, you know, they always made sure that whoever they brought in, um, you know, wouldn't have any kind of scandalous past or you know, any, anything else that might look bad. Because again, as I mentioned, uh, listeners would write in and complain um, if there was something they didn't like. And they took this kind of letter writing extremely seriously. So this is all um, leading up to what happens in the early 50s at Kraft and J. Walter Thompson. So in the paper, you talk about how Kraft reacted to the Hollywood blacklist, which to my somewhat surprise, doesn't seem nearly as Hollywood necessarily as 
as I previously thought it was. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the blacklist was and how it worked like in reality, as opposed to sort of in our imagination. Most of what has been written about blacklisting has focused on Hollywood and it was fairly centralized in the major film studios. Um, However, in broadcasting, um, for which much less has been written about how blacklisting worked, blacklisting was scattered across dozens and dozens of broadcasters, advertisers, and advertising agencies um, and producers. There were radio and television program producers. And all of those entities were kind of running their own kind of private blacklists. So the other thing about broadcast blacklisting was that um, in Hollywood, they were worried about selling tickets to theaters. Um, In broadcasting, the business model was renting airtime to advertisers. And advertisers wanted to sell products and advertisers wanted to look good. And as I mentioned before, they saw the program as directly reflecting on their brand, that the program was the ad and that the advertising interruptions that they might insert or they might have a cast commercial where people were sipping coffee and talking about how wonderful it was. That was not the main thrust of the advertising strategy. The main thrust was the entertainment because the idea was that listeners would feel positively towards the the company for the entertainment itself. So in broadcasting, the uh, blacklisting was oriented around which performers or writers might reflect badly on the advertising and the product. Um, not, not in Hollywood where it was studios, nobody really, it, it was a very different kind of um, concern and a different kind of motivation. Um, so the way that it usually worked was um, there was an organization called American Business Consultants um, who you know, gathered information, some of which was unreliable, about all sorts of different people, and then they would publish it in their newsletter called Counterattack. Um, and what they noticed was they, they wrote about lots of different areas, education, government, uh, broadcasting, Hollywood, and they noticed the stuff about broadcasting really kind of got more attention. And so then they put together a little book called Red Channels. And if you're familiar at all with broadcast blacklisting, you've heard of Red Channels. It's got a great cover with a red hand grabbing a microphone. Um, And they argued that broadcasting was a particularly powerful uh, way to propagandize because one microphone could reach 90 million listeners, right? And therefore, you had to prevent any communist from getting access to that microphone. And, you know, one of the issues uh, uh, with uh, blacklisting was that the official policy of the Communist Party at that time was that no communist member could publicly claim Communist Party membership. What that meant was that uh, it became very difficult to confirm party membership, um, and that kind of created the spiral of suspicion. Uh, So if you said you were not a member of the CP, the Communist Party, that was not actually evidence uh, that you were not a member. So so you can see how this uh, could work. So in the actual industry, what happened was uh, people who were affiliated with uh, American business consultants, particularly a grocery store owner uh, in Syracuse, New York, named Larry Johnson, would go around literally up and down Madison Avenue, visit different ad agencies and say, you know, you really got to blacklist this guy uh, because, you know, Red Channel says this about him. 
Um, and he'd also go to the sponsors and go visit them. So why did the sponsors and the ad agencies even talk to this guy? Um, it's because they thought he had influence among supermarket owners across the country and therefore consumers. And what they really did not want was a consumer boycott of their products. Now, different advertisers responded to this pressure. Some of them ignored him. Uh, Procter & Gamble didn't really pay too much attention, for example. And they're a big company that made a lot of soap products, and they were the single largest broadcast sponsor. However, a company like Kraft had always been extremely sensitive to this notion that the people on their programs were reflecting something about their brand. And so Jack Platt took this fairly seriously. And as the pressure kind of ratcheted up um, from 1947 to 1951, uh, by 1952, it it was really uh, very high. This is kind of the peak of what we think of today as the McCarthyism period. Although McCarthy had nothing to do with the broadcast blacklist. Um, By the time uh, Johnson and his minions uh, were meeting with Platt um, and and, uh, kind of threatening these consumer boycotts, Platt then turned his attention to his ad agency, J. Walter Thompson, and he was working with a man there named John Reber, and they'd been working together since the early 30s. So they'd worked together for like 20 years at this point. And he says, you know, hey, you hired John Randolph, um, an actor uh, who has communist affiliations, and you hired him twice, and now we're, we're, we're under threat of a consumer boycott, and we can't have this. You must create a checklist. John Reber then responds, oh, we have to, we're going to have to have a, a, a blacklist. And he immediately turns to the director of the legal department at J. Walter Thompson. And he says, you know, we've never had to actually have a blacklist before, but it looks like now we have to. So the head of the legal department, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Edward, Edward Wilson, he, he then starts compiling information. And what I found in the J. Walter Thompson archives was this uh, box that Edward Wilson had stored everything, uh, letters, memos, lists. And he also stored a secret set of documents. And this was something that nobody else had found, but people had heard of. It was called Confidential File Number 13. And what this was, was instead of the public publication of Red Channels, this was secret publications that the American business consultants had sent to subscribing ad agencies. And these were secret documents that claimed, you know, certain uh, actors like Jessica Tandy, for example, you know, were members of, you know, some sort of communist front organization. And because these were secret, people like Jessica Tandy could not actually um, object to them the way people publicly objected to red channels. So I found a letter from Hume Cronin, which was her husband, say, you know, what's going on? You know, is there something, you know, on us? Because we don't know what it could be. And can you please take us off your blacklist if we're on it? And of course, they didn't respond um, and, you know, didn't acknowledge this because um, if they acknowledged having a blacklist, if they acknowledged having a checklist, uh, they could be sued. Um, The legal grounds for which you would know better than I um, but, you know, uh, they knew they could be sued. So Wilson's job 
at J. Walter Thompson was to manage this blacklist and yet deny it existed. And his job was also to advise John Reber, who was in charge of casting all of the TV shows, uh, who he could hire and who he could not hire. Uh, And this is all uh, detailed in many, many, many letters and memos in which they're, they're actually discussing who to blacklist by name and why to blacklist them or not blacklist them. And so part of a, a large part of this, <clears throat> excuse me, a large part of this article is detailing um, some of these debates within the ad agency about who to blacklist and why and um, what counts as a blacklistable offense. So the archival material you include in the papers is really fascinating. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what the conventional wisdom about the broadcasting blacklist was and how your article through this archival material offers a different perspective. Sure. So one of the great assumptions, one of the major assumptions about blacklisting is that A, either the blacklists were metaphorical or B, um, that they'd all been destroyed, that, you know, there was no paper trail at all. Because again, all of these um, companies were anxious about being sued, right? They didn't want to leave a paper trail. Um, so this is one of the reasons that blacklist broadcasting has been less well studied. The, there are two major sources that people have used when they've talked about broadcast blacklisting. Um, one is uh, a study, the John Cogley study, Uh, and broadcast blacklisting um, from, I think it's 1952, in which he went around and he talked to agencies and sponsors and said, so are you blacklisting? And we're going to write a book about it. Uh, Of course, a lot of people wouldn't talk to him. And the people who did talk to him insisted on, most of them insisted on having pseudonyms. So what is very interesting is I found a letter uh, by Wilson saying that he did talk to Cogley and he was, um, he appeared on page 119 as Harry Law. And um, when you go look at what he's told Cogley, almost everything he told Cogley was a lie. He claimed he didn't keep a list when he had a list with over 1,000 names on it. He said he only used publicly available information when he had every issue of confidential file number 13. Uh, He said that he didn't blacklist people uh, when he did. And then he said um, he wasn't personally involved in any of this Uh, when I found dozens and dozens of memos in which he actually established the specific grounds upon which somebody would be um, blacklisted. So in other words, one of the major sources that we have all used in our historical work um, is um, not accurate because the people who, who provided the information you know, obviously served their own interests in obfuscating their actions during this period. And the second major source is the, um, I think it's a libel trial. John Henry Falk in 1962 sued the American business consultants for his being booted off the air. And so they were all required to testify under oath, a bunch of these people. Um, and, And you know that, again, they provided not only self-serving testimony, uh, but ex post facto, which means that, you know, their memories might have, you know, not been con- entirely accurate. 
So these um, archival documents are contemporaneous. And as I discuss in the article, uh, what I'm doing is I'm describing how how it evolved over time. And what happened at J. Walter Thompson and Kraft was at first they resisted the pressure, then they gave into it, and they were just blacklisting everybody like crazy. And then they got tired of it. And then they found out that a bunch of it was lies because one of the sources turns, he wrote a book about how he was lying about all these people. Um, And then they started pushing back against the pressure. And there's this wonderful 13-page memo by John Reber about let's take 47 people off this blacklist uh, because their big sin was objecting to blacklisting. That would get you blacklisted. Or they were supporting um, civil rights. Uh, That was another major blacklisting uh, uh, factor. Um, And so they start pushing back uh, on this. And part of there's no way to document that without contemporaneous uh, documents, because otherwise, if you went and talked to these people later, they would just say, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we resisted those people. They would tell you about what they did later in the cycle of political pressure and not what happened during the peak of it. And that's why it's so important always when you're trying to write about this stuff, especially anything controversial, that you look at the contemporaneous documentation if you can get it. Yeah, it was amazing how frustrated the ad agency and craft got by the end of the cycle as as the ABC started to like really overextend itself and make increasingly unreasonable claims. Yeah, and you know, some so much of this too was the people who were involved in pressuring the ad agencies and the sponsors really got kind of power mad, right? They just, the leverage was just so pleasurable for them. And then they tried to get uh, the ad agency to hire their people, the actors that, you know, were part of their tribe and their group, right? Um, Whether or not they were good actors or not. And um, this was something that they fought about continually. It's like, no, no, we have casting control. And, and the, and the counter subversive activists were like, no, no, we should have casting control. Right. Um, And then when they really pushed to blacklist anybody who objected to blacklisting, you know, that to me was the big reveal that this really was about power and leverage and not really about this principle, so-called, that communists somehow were bad for Americans or bad for the brand. It was really about who had the leverage. So, Cynthia, in closing, I, I wonder whether you think the story that you tell about the sort of realities of how blacklisting worked in in the 1950s in, in broadcasting has any resonance or lessons for us today. I mean, it seems like on some level, while the people pushing the blacklist were really kind of dreadful, at the same time, they were also like people expressing their opinions about what they thought advertisers should and and shouldn't be doing, which they're kind of entitled to do, at least on some level. Uh, And and I guess to some degree, we see similar kinds of things happening today with people using pressure to force advertisers not to hire certain people or to sort of distance themselves from people they'd previously been associated with. Is that really so different from blacklisting? And if, if not, should we be troubled by that? I am actually troubled by it. I, I want to make a distinction. 
consumer boycotts is when the consumer decides to buy something or not buy something. Um, and I don't really see an issue with that. Um, what I feel uncomfortable about is when media companies um, are pressured via their advertisers, right? So a lot of media organizations depend on ad revenue and advertisers are advertising in that media organization in part, not so much because they want to be associated with the content because the content and the ads got separated back in the 1960s um, and they don't have editorial control over most of that media content. And we don't want them to have editorial control over most of that content. In other words, when we separated the ads from the content, you know, we have this sort of uh, understanding that the advertiser, yes, they are supporting the content indirectly by advertising, but they don't have that editorial program control, content control, the way they did back in the single sponsorship era when everybody knew they had that control and therefore were responsible for the content. Um, so it makes me very uncomfortable when people call for a boycott of an advertiser who shows up on a website or a YouTube video, and today especially through programmatic placement in which that advertiser actually didn't select that content to be adjacent to. And then they get called, people called to boycott that advertiser because they're adjacent to that content and are therefore indirectly supporting it. Um, I find that concerning. Um, and I, I don't have any policy recommendations and I'm not a legal scholar and I'm not a policy person. However, what what does concern me is that these kinds of kind of movements to deplatform or boycott can come from any political position. And it's easy for us to look back at the McCarthyist period and say, oh, yeah, that was bad, right? Because people whose political views we might share were harmed by it, right? Not just communists or communist sympathizers, but a lot of liberals got caught up in this position of standing up for the rights of communists or communist sympathizers then got them blacklisted, right? So standing up for the principle that somebody could hold these political views got them in trouble. And I see a similar thing kind of happening now in which standing up for the principle of like, well, yeah, you don't like that person's ideas, right? Don't go buy that person's products, right? But then to triangulate it and go after a media organization or a certain kind of content because there's that triangulated relationship, that kind of bothers me because it's a weapon that can be used by any political uh, persuasion. It's not limited to the right wing or the left wing. And I'm kind of of the position that two wrongs don't tend to make a right. Um, and so this is a very difficult thing to talk about right now. Um, I'm very careful on Twitter not <laughs> to talk about this too much. Uh, the couple of times I've tried to sort of mention that maybe boycotting Fox advertisers, uh, maybe not the greatest political strategy I've been landed on. Uh, because even if I sympathize with the political aims of the people calling for the strategy, by questioning the strategy, it must mean that I'm not supporting the aims, right? Um, so I, I think um, it's useful for people to go back 
and read about the dynamics of the pressure here, the, not just the political pressures, but the economic pressures on advertisers. And if you remove the political context um, and then start looking at some of what's happening now, I think there's some lessons for us in it. Mm-hmm. Well, Cynthia, thanks so much for coming on the show. This is a great paper and I really enjoyed talking to you about it. And I think you're right. There's a lot of interesting parallels and lessons to be learned. Thanks for having me. 